If you're visiting today, uh, we're continuing through a series on the book of John this morning. Today we are looking at the beginning of chapter 4. If you'd like to turn there, we also have it printed for you uh, in, in your bulletin. This is a, probably a very familiar passage to many of you. At the very least, it'll be, it'll be a passage with a familiar name. This is the beginning of the story of the woman at the well. But, but while I read and, and while, you, while you follow along, um, I want you to remember that when we read, when, when we read about the life of Christ uh, in the Gospels, and in particular when we read about the life of Christ in John, who tells us that the reason he wrote these things down is so that we might know that he's the Christ, the Son of God, that we might have life. Uh, we, are, we are primarily learning about Jesus. We're learning about the eternal word who became flesh, about the Son of God who was sent to save the world. That may be already obvious to all of you, but I'm just asking you, as I'm reading, keep, keep your eyes focused on Jesus as I read this passage. So let me read for us. This is John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this day to gather together with your people and to gather to sing your praises and ultimately to gather uh, to hear from you. We pray that this morning, uh, by your spirit, you would speak powerfully and clearly to us. We pray that you would help us not only to, to understand these words, but, but to embrace them uh, as the words of life. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, some of you, some of you might already know this. Um, I just discovered it this week, 
But Athens is apparently uh, in a drought right now. About six weeks ago, I don't know who declares these things, but it was declared that 53 counties in Georgia are in a level one drought. I'm not sure what a level one is either. Um, Apparently this drought uh, is also forecasted to last all the way through January, and it's bad enough that the state of Florida is suing is suing the state of Georgia for not letting enough water flow through the Chattahoochee River into their state. Um, I'm, I'm not a farmer. Uh, I don't depend daily uh, on rainwater. Uh, but it just struck me that, you know, I, don't, I haven't been thirsty during this whole drought. Um, when I think about it, I don't, I don't think I've ever been thirsty for more than two or three hours at a time in my entire life. Um, it, that's probably the same. It's probably the same for many of you here. I mean, I, I wonder if, I wonder if any of you have ever, have ever really been thirsty. If you've ever really wondered uh, if or where you might be able to get your hands on some water tomorrow. Have you ever, have you ever thought about what it would be like to live in an arid place where there's no irrigation and there's no plumbing? I mean, what would what would you do, or what would you be willing to do if you discovered there was a place where you could have a permanent source of water? Well, as we've been, as, we've been, as we have been working our way through the book of John, you might have noticed that he's been talking about water since the beginning of the gospel. Uh, in chapter 1, uh, we see John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner. He's taking everyone he can Uh, to put water on them, to be baptized. In chapter 2, we see water gets turned into wine at Jesus' first miracle. And in chapter 3, we meet Nicodemus, and Jesus tells him that he must be born of water and the Spirit. And this passage, too, uh, is is about water. Specifically, it's it's about being thirsty, about how we even misunderstand our own thirst. Um... You might have noticed it's, I titled it The Bad Samaritan. That's because um, it's because I'll do anything to get your attention, honestly. Uh, but the, really, this passage is about Jesus. It's not, it's not really about the woman. It's about Jesus and who he is and what he came to do. And every time we read stories about Jesus, we, we really should want to learn about him so that we might be like him. We should... We should want to know what it's like to be conformed in his image. But at the same time, uh, the greater emphasis must fall on what he is accomplishing and has accomplished on our behalf. The The things that he did that we could never imitate. The things he did that we could never do for ourselves. Because, you see, we only we only begin to understand who Jesus is when when we understand our need of him. What this passage tells us is that Jesus has come to quench our thirst. Jesus has come to bring us into an everlasting life with God by the Spirit. So how does he do that? I want us us to see that Jesus comes uh, with purpose first. I want us to see that Jesus comes to cross boundaries. And lastly, we'll see that Jesus, he comes... To give living water. So if you're taking notes, he comes with purpose to cross boundaries and to give living water. 
So first he comes with purpose. Look with me again at the first three verses here. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Jesus is now leaving the Judean countryside, and he's doing so because of the Pharisees. They have, uh, they have found him out. We're not exactly sure. We're not told um, how they learned this. Maybe they learned it from Nicodemus. But, but they've discovered that just like John, uh, Jesus is making disciples and he's baptizing, except he is getting even more followers than John. Already, uh, John would have probably been an embarrassment to them. Uh, this man telling uh, Israelites, uh, the holy people of God, that they all need to repent because of the coming judgment. But Jesus, with, with even more followers, would have only heightened all their concerns. Of course, we're told in verse 2 that he didn't actually, didn't actually do the baptizing, but to be baptized by his followers is to be baptized by Jesus. So he's headed to Galilee. He's, he's going on a, about a 75-mile trip due north. Uh, he's fleeing the Pharisees, perhaps, perhaps because, as he might say later, uh, it is not yet his time. Uh, but it's likely that he is avoiding any hint of division that people might have sensed between his mission and John's mission. We, we learned at the end of chapter 3 that John's disciples were beginning to become jealous of Jesus' followers. This is certainly something that the Pharisees would have wanted to exploit. So Jesus is headed out of town for a while. He's headed north. But then in verse 4, there's this, uh, at least what I think is a fascinating a fascinating phrase. We're told in verse 4 that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Israeli geography, but for many, uh, during this time, Samaria would have simply been, it would have simply been the normal route. It was on the way to Galilee. Uh, at the very least, it would have been faster if Jesus was in a hurry, but uh, there were some people Certainly, we'd want to include the Pharisees in this group that would not have wanted to go through Samaria. They would have, they would have, uh, they would have taken a big detour. They would have gone through Jericho, added about 15 or 20 miles to their trip, and then traveled up the Jordan River. Certainly would have been convenient to, to be near a river during their travels, but it also it kept them from having to interact uh, with the Samaritans. But still, why, why, why did he have to? It's, lit, it's literally something like, it was necessary that he had to go through Samaria. Um, if, one of you, if one of you were going to travel uh, to Augusta today, I wouldn't say, oh, you have to get on I-20. That's just part of, that's just part of the route. Of course, of course, why would you add that information? It's just part of the route. Um, in addition to that, since when did Jesus, the Son of God, have to do anything? Um, one, of my, one of my professors, Ian Hamilton, put it this way. He said, Jesus had to go through Samaria because God had set his sights on this woman. Earlier in chapter 3, uh, we read that Jesus is sent into the world because of the Father's love of the world. And later, 
Uh, in chapter 6, we're told that his very food is to do the will of the Father. And in chapter 10, Jesus says he lays down his life of his own accord because of the charge that he received from his Father. So yes, Jesus had to come through Samaria for the same reason that he had to come into the world. Jesus had a purpose. Jesus was compelled by the love of the Father to gather and perfect his sheep. And there were no accidental encounters along the way. There are no chance encounters with Jesus. They all have significance. Jesus, he could have asked his disciples to get him some water before he sent them into town. He could have, he could have even told this woman, you know, now's not really a good time. Can you just give me the water? I don't want to talk. But he moved toward her uh, with purpose. There was no one in his path uh, by accident. And if, if Jesus comes with purpose, then that means we can never be neutral about our encounters with him. You must be attentive to everything that he says, both in his written word and in the preaching of his ministers. If you, if you are here, God has purposed to bring you a message about living water today. He was not compelled, and neither is it any accident. Jesus came to this woman, and he has come to you. He speaks with purpose. So do not let this pass you by. Perhaps, perhaps today might be a day of eternal significance for you. This purpose that Jesus has drives him, and it drives him even, even to cross boundaries. Uh, the most obvious I've already mentioned is that is that he comes into Samaria. Uh, this deserves a, a little bit of explanation. There had been hostile relations between the Jews and the Samaritans for about 750 years by this point. Way back in 2 Kings 17, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom and sent the Israelites into exile. The Samaritans were those that remained behind and intermarried with the Assyrians. So they were considered... They were considered a mixed race by the Jews. They were also uh, religiously compromised. They had built their own temple. They'd adopted some of the pagan practices of their invaders. And even though they kept the first five books of the Old Testament, they rejected the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the rest that talks about the emphasis on the southern kingdom and God's salvation coming through the line of David. Uh, relations were so bad that by 128 B.C., the Jews actually attacked uh, Samaria and they destroyed uh, the city of Shechem. This was, this was the land that Jacob had given Joseph. It's likely, it's likely the location of the well. And then by the second century, uh, roughly 100 years after what's happening in our passage, uh, there's still such hostility that a man named Rabbi Eliezer wrote that he that eats the bread of Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of swine. 
the Jews hated the Samaritans. But what we see is that Jesus is he's willing to cross a hundred other social boundaries uh, in this short little encounter as well, particularly when he asks her uh, for a drink. Jesus uh, is alone because he sent the disciples to buy lunch. Uh, he's alone talking to a woman, and on top of that, he's alone talking to a woman at a well. You, you might be able to think of several instances in the Old Testament where men uh, meet their wives uh, at a well. At the very least, we know, it, we know that it's fishy enough that later in the chapter, the disciples, it says they marveled that he talked to this woman. On top of that, we're told in verse 6 that it's at the sixth hour. That would have been at noon. Um, we, can, we can gather that from this that she is probably a social outcast. Uh, the normal thing would have been for women to come in a group and to come uh, during the evening. But she is unwelcome with those people for reasons that we'll learn later in the chapter. Uh, this woman is the anti-Nicodemus. She has no social capital. She has no respect in the community. And she is very much not Jewish. So that even, even she thinks uh, this is uh, at least strange and maybe suspect that Jesus is speaking to her this way. Look at verse, at verse 9. She says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That phrase, no dealings there, could equally be translated, do not use vessels together. I don't know if you caught it, but Jesus, Jesus is asking not only for a drink, he's asking, can I have a sip out of, out of your bucket? Um, this is beyond scandalous in appearance. This is very shocking and in-your-face boundary-crossing uh, for a man called, a man called Rabbi, a Jew, to cross into Samaria and ask to drink out of this outcast woman's straw. But the gospel trumps these boundaries. The gospel transcends cultural and traditional sensibilities. So Jesus comes to her because the one thing she does have in common with Nicodemus is her need of what only Jesus has. And this actually this highlights, this highlights Jesus' willingness to cross the greatest boundary that God in all his perfections and holiness and righteousness would come and talk to a sinner. Jesus, God the Son, is tired and thirsty because he's taken on flesh. He's come to meet with sinners, and he meets this woman on common ground. He shares his humanity with her, even, even dignifies her by asking her for a drink. And it's all out of love that he crosses this uncrossable boundary of his holiness so that he might make her holy. 
consider consider the the boundaries that Jesus has crossed for you if you know him you see when when you begin to grasp the depths of the chasm between yourself and a holy God and what Jesus endured to cross that chasm, then you'll cross any boundary to share this news about him. Jesus, he was not simply reaching out to someone that might fit into his group. and In fact, it would only cause more problems if, if she were to join them. But often when, when we encounter people that are different than ourselves, uh, we are uncomfortable, perhaps understandably. And, and we, we look for reasons to not have to move toward people. Well, you know, we just, we don't really have anything in common. Um, or she's, I don't think she's quite ready for that yet. And if we can, if we can find a legitimate reason, uh, well, then we, then we think we're off the hook. Um, John Calvin said, said um, about the Jews and their relationship with the Samaritans, he said, the Jews used zeal for the law to conceal their carnal hatred. You see, the Jews actually did kind of have a legitimate reason, the Samaritans' false worship, to at least have a, have a disagreement with them but it just became an excuse for plain, simple hate. Uh, and sometimes, we, we don't like to admit this, but sometimes we just hate people. With whom uh, do you have legitimate disagreements with that you have allowed to simply turn into indifference? rather than a longing that they might have living water. And that's, that's what all this radical boundary crossing is for. It's so that when Jesus comes, he comes to give uh, living water. Look, look at verse 10. Uh, he actually answers the woman. He says, well, if, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you uh, living water. I'm, I'm not sure she, she deserves an answer to her question, but Jesus gives her one and, and seems to, what, what he often does, he seems to change the subject. He tells her, well, you should have actually asked me a different question. She wants to know who it is that's talking to her. And he says, well, you actually should have been asking me for a drink. And then he, and he says he has living water. What is that? Well, she, she probably understood that as simply flowing water, in, in contrast to like pond water or well water. She thinks he means he has a river, but he's talking, he's talking about his spirit. She makes explicit later in chapter 7, but even in the background here is Jeremiah 2.13, where God says, my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out Broken cisterns, that's a, that's a dugout water hole, hewed out broken cisterns that can hold no water. Also, Ezekiel 47 that we read earlier in the service and really over and over again in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, 
Uh, It is the Spirit who's represented as water and salvation that is being poured out on God's people. Jesus, you see what he's doing? Jesus uses her uh, real, tangible, physical felt need to point her toward a greater and deeper spiritual need. He tells her that not only does he have a gift, but he is the giver of that gift, and the gift itself is his spirit. John baptized with water, but Jesus would come and baptize with the spirit, pouring it out on his people. This might, this might all seem somewhat obvious, but we, we have to rehearse this over and over again that Christ and his spirit are gifts. They, they are not simply a matter of religious choices. They are life and peace and freedom and joy sent by the Father, who for no other reason than the eternal love that he has for his people. He has living water. And she says, but sir, you don't even have a bucket. Uh, like Nicodemus, she's, she's blind to the realities of which he speaks here. There's, there's no flowing water here, sir. Why do you think Jacob dug a well? Are you greater than Jacob? One of our patriarchs, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel? Impossible. Yes, ma'am. I am. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, Jacob's water can't quench forever. You have to keep coming back. But he doesn't doesn't deny that it has some kind of quenching ability. I mean, Jacob's water is good as far as it goes, but every earthly attempt to fulfill this kind of satisfaction is temporary. Jesus alone can bring you this ultimate and eternal satisfaction. It's the satisfaction that you were made to have, but can only be met by your maker. So Jesus' water, which is the spirit, he tells her, overflows and brings everlasting satisfaction so that you will never thirst again. This is emphatic language here. It's something like not never thirst forever. Jesus, he just assumes that we are thirsty and that we need filling. And while while Jacob's water and the whole old covenant uh, was external and temporary, he says, my well will actually become a well in you, become a spring. And it's living, not because of the effect that it has, but because of the everlasting source, an unending fountain of pleasure and joy from the right hand of God himself. See, it's not, it's not that you won't thirst, but there will never be a drought again. Does, does that sound good to you? It sounds good to me. Um, 
I think it sounds good to her. She's, she's beginning to rethink a little bit about what Jesus has said. She's no longer questioning why he's there. She says, give me this water. But you notice, uh, she's only interested in his offer as far as it helps her get the things she wants. I mean, that would be great if I didn't have to come back to this well anymore. She's still, she's still stuck on this, this earthly plane. Our, our real and deep spiritual needs that we all have, they're often, they get disguised in these kind of earthly clothes. Uh, we want to be satisfied uh, at our job. We want to have satisfying uh, relationships. We want, we want to be healthy and have, and have a long life. And these felt needs are real. But, but in our sin and, and in our blindness, we, we use them to mask these greater, deeper spiritual needs. We hear, we hear an offer from God of everlasting spiritual life in His presence and say, but, but you don't have a bucket. You mean, you mean if, I, if I go to church, I'll have a more stable family life? Okay, I'll try that. Do you mean that if I read my Bible and pray regularly, that God will take care of me? Okay, I'll give, it, I'll give that a shot. I mean... What good is this living water anyway if my life is falling apart here and now as far as I can see it? We have to learn to identify with the right characters in the story. Uh, To paraphrase Nathan, the prophet who spoke to David, you are the woman. Um, We are more like her than we know we are we're driven by our sight. We're prone to be preoccupied with the things of the world, fixed on our own perceptions of the things that we think we need, but it's only to the extent that we see our sin and the need that it brings that we find Jesus and the living water that he speaks about interesting. Now, Tim... Tim Keller uh, wrote this in his book on preaching. He tells a little story. He says, Many years ago in my first pastorate, I met with a teenage girl in our congregation. She was about 16 at the time, and she was discouraged and becoming depressed. I tried to encourage her, but there was a revelatory moment when she said, Yes, I know Jesus loves me. He saved me. He's going to take me to heaven. But what good is that when no boy in school will even look at you? You see, it's normal in one sense, the way that, the way that this girl responded. But it, I mean, it reveals the way that our hearts work. She, she had an opinion that Jesus loved her, but it was, it was just a concept. It was an an abstract 
idea alongside a bunch of other sets of ideas. But until we can see ourselves as just as needy and thirsty as the woman at the well, we won't embrace the living water that Jesus offers as anything more than an idea. It's, it's just another fact to place alongside all the other facts and the other circumstances that are pressing down on us. But Jesus tells us here that he has come to quench your thirst. Jesus has come to bring you into everlasting life with God by the Spirit. He comes with purpose, sent by the Father's love, not only to reveal our greatest need, but with the will and the ability to meet that need. And while that need is continual, he has an everlasting supply of grace for you. He sits at the right hand of the Father and ever lives to intercede for you, and he gives his spirit. Are you thirsty? I mean, aren't you thirsty? Where, where do you turn when your soul is thirsty? So let us, let us run to him who gives the spirit. Let us learn to see all of our desires, even, even the true and legitimate ones as subordinate and even, even reflections of our one great need, that is to have eternal life with God. And then, and only then, in the face of all the uncertainty that the world brings, in the face of genuine suffering, we might be able to press on in steady obedience and joy filled with an inexhaustible fountain of life. Turn to the fountain of life, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thirsty and we confess that we don't, we don't often even understand our own thirst. You have told us that you have sent your son to bring a spring of everlasting water that your son came to pour out his spirit on us. God, I pray that that would not just be an idea, but that you would press it down into us, that these eternal truths would actually feel life-giving. Father, we, we need you, uh, we love you, and we praise you for your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.